Hello, I'm Kate Chabot. Welcome to SITREP, your weekly look at the big issues in defence and world affairs. The future of the world order is at stake, says the Defence Secretary. Mike will give us his thoughts, as will the Commander of Strategic Command. The world is undoubtedly dangerous and we face a range of, of different threats. But I think it's the leadership and commitment of like-minded nations which actually gives me hope. We're told non-state actors aligned with nation-states are an increasing threat. We look at what the Houthis have. There is nothing we can do within this campaign, US-UK, to actually erode the capability that the Houthis have significantly to make them stop doing what they're doing. And is diplomacy failing us? The risk with all of that is that diplomacy stops being the tool of first resort, which it frankly always should be, and becomes more of a support act. Zidrev with Kate Chabot and Professor Michael Clark. From Ukraine to the Middle East, the South China Sea to North Korea, South America to Africa, and new theatres from cyber to space warfare. All of which could have a disastrous impact at home. How we respond will define our future. And the choice is clear. The era of the peace dividend is over. And now, just like our enemies, we must plan and invest for an era of confrontations. The Defence Secretary there on social media with a stark warning of what lies ahead. The peace dividend, so he says, is a thing of the past. But what is it and why has it seemingly failed? Mike, hi, good to speak to you again. What is your assessment? Yes, I mean, the peace dividend is a thing of the past. Um, you, you look at any of the figures you want to. I mean, in, in 1960, in the middle of the Cold War, Britain was spending 7% of its GDP on defence. In 1990, when the Cold War was over, we were spending 4% and now we're spending about 2.2%. And then, well, what have, we, what have we spent the money on that we've saved? By and large, we've spent it on you know, welfare and healthcare. And it's very interesting, if you look at some figures, in the 1970s, our spending on defence was about the same as our spending on healthcare. Sometimes it was a little bit above it, other times it was about the same, in the 1970s. By the 1990s, at the end of the Cold War, it dropped dramatically, so that by the year 2000, we were spending half of, of, of on defence that we spent on healthcare, and now we're spending a quarter on defence as on healthcare. Now, that's not to argue against spending on healthcare. Britain spends comparatively little on healthcare compared to most of the other OECD countries. We're about third or fourth from the bottom in cash mm. terms. But the fact is, we now spend a quarter of that on defence when we used to spend about the same on defence. So that is the peace dividend. We, we took the money out of defence, put it into welfare and healthcare. Logical thing to do. And what Grand Chaps is now saying is, well, that era is over, and I think nobody will give him an argument on that. That era is over. The question is, are we now going to begin to reverse some of those uh, percentages? And, of course, the only way you can do that, really, is with economic growth. Um, mm. You know, it's economic growth is the essence of trying to adjust what the government spends on this as opposed to that. And are you surprised at the strength of Grant Chaps's warnings? Uh, a little bit. Uh, I mean, he's only saying what everybody privately has been saying. He's, he's only saying what other ministers say. Um, but I think we should be aware this was his first big defence speech. Um, he wants this to go down as, as his 
a statement, as it were, as Defence Secretary. We know that he's he's a caretaker Defence Secretary mm. until the election. We'll see what happens after that. But I doubt that he would be Defence Secretary after the election for a number of different reasons. Um, and as, in a way, I think he wants to establish the fact that he, he said it. Um, but nobody, nobody expects anything to change until after the election. Mm. And whoever wins the election will then have to think about it. But between now and the election, nothing will change strategically. Well, the Defence Secretary went on to set out more detail on his vision of global threats in that speech at Lancaster House in London, and he announced that 20,000 British Forces personnel will take part in the NATO exercise Steadfast Defender. Given the situation in the Red Sea, that exercise has new significance, Mike? Yes, it does. Um, it's the biggest exercise since uh, 1991, 1990-91. That was uh, Safe Syria 2. Uh, you might remember, we all remember it, uh, because it came just before the 9-11 attacks and there were 23,000 uh, troops went to Oman in a very big exercise. So this is the biggest since then, very expensive, but it also is, is an example of Britain trying now to take some sort of lead within NATO at a time when NATO is going to be under pressure. I mean, NATO is saying all the right things, but we all know this is going to be a very difficult year, 2024. And so it's right, I think, that Britain should try to show that we really mean it. Um, the problem is it is very expensive and 20,000 troops in a big new exercise will leave a lot of holes elsewhere, like everything else in British defence. We've got a great shop window. You know, we can put things in the shop window, but there's not a lot in the stockroom. <laughs> Yeah. Um, Mike, um, you said earlier that nothing's going to happen before the general election and Grant Sharps, although very strong on the threats, didn't uh, give any detail on how the UK will deal with those threats. Is, is that the reason why? Because he just simply can't. Yes. I mean, there's certain things we can do. Um, but what we can, not, nothing that we can do will represent any big strategic changes. And I think what he's saying and what, he, what the government agrees, what Rishi Sunak agrees is that we do need, we do need to make some fairly big strategic changes to our defense posture from now. But the from now means, you know, when we've got the election out of the way, I, I can't conceive that to, that this year between now and whenever the election is, let's guess in the autumn, uh, that there'll be any really big changes. Lots of things will be announced. And indeed, um, it's interesting that Grand Sharps didn't talk about the, the, um, the Jeff, uh, the mm -hmm. Joint Expeditionary Force, which, you know, Britain is leading of all um, the northern, um, uh, allies. And indeed, this 20,000 exercise has been that was, this was the second time it's been announced. You know, it's mm -hmm. in, in the, in the best tradition. If you've got something good to announce, announce it two and three <laughs> times. Well, also giving his views on future threats this week is someone we rarely hear from, General Sir Jim Hockenhull, Commander of Strategic Command. The world is a, is a dangerous place. And, uh, and as we've seen over recent years, we've got a war in Europe um, for the first time um, in, in you know, many generations, uh, uh, you know, going back now to um, over sort of 80 years or so. We face a range of different challenges, but at the same time of that danger, you know, I think we, we see a resolve amongst like-minded nations in order to, to try and both push back against those sorts of aggression, but also a determination to sustain the sort of global order. So the world is, the world is undoubtedly dangerous uh, and we face a range of, of different threats. Um, but I think it's the the sort of the, the leadership and commitment um, of like-minded nations, which actually gives me hope that um, those, those risks won't come to bear. But when they, when they do, um, then we need to be committed um, to confront them. And 
you know, the Prime Minister's announcement of, of £2.5 billion worth of assistance to Ukraine for the next financial year you know, is an indication um, of the UK's enduring commitment to make sure that we push back against those sorts of threats and challenges. Well, General Hockenhull was speaking to our reporter, Sean Grescheck. Sean, um, good to speak to you. Um, he has painted a somewhat less bleak view of the future to Grant Shapps. Yes, Kate, and uh, uh, there is that obvious contrast, isn't there, when you compare uh, what they're both saying on this. And, and I was in the room at Lancaster House when Grant Shapps gave his speech and hammered home his point about us being in that pre-war era. And it was interesting to hear the reaction to that speech externally. I spoke to one just one person who'd watched it, uh, has no defence background. They decided to tune in to hear what he had to say. And, and their take home from it was, well, we should be pretty frightened now, shouldn't we? Now, when I spoke to General Hockenhull, which was a few days before uh, Grant's, Grant Chap's speech, I asked him, you know, given all of the melting pots across, you know, the world that we're seeing, are we on the cusp of World War Three? And he said that talk of World War Three was cartoonish in uh, in in his opinion, and, and I think that's, that speaks a lot to his disposition, even as an intelligence officer who sees everything at the highest classification levels. That he still remains optimistic, as we heard in that clip there. But at the same time, he's not shying away from the risks, and you wouldn't expect him as you know. To, to do that as head of strategic command, which in his words you know, is meant to be the brains of defence and looking to the future and how we fight and how the services integrate to work cohesively. But despite being more positive, he still brought up the doomsday clock, which is it's actually due to be updated in a few days time. Now, it's something that was set up by a group of atomic scientists who get together and take a view as to how dangerous the world is. It started back in the 90s and the clock was set at that point to seven minutes to midnight. The idea being that doomsday occurs when midnight hits. Last year, they moved the clock it had been moving forward progressively. Um, last year, it was 90 seconds to midnight in terms of the doomsday clock. Now, you know, the, they have their own uh, assessment of how they come to this. I think what I draw from that is, you know, the world is a dangerous place and we need to make sure that we're able to, to address those challenges. But we need to do that both in, in the specific, but also sort of in broader context. Uh, and I think that's where um, the role that um, the UK plays through membership of the, the Security Council of the, of the United Nations in a variety of other kind of international fora are, are so important. But it's also a, a, a consideration um, for UK defence in terms of our, our global presence and our global role. And one of the areas of strategic command um, that I look after are our overseas bases and our global defence network of defence attaches and loan service teams overseas. Um, and it's an important part of, of kind of military diplomacy um, and our engagement, being uh, supportive and reinforcing you know, the diplomacy um, lead from the um, Foreign and Commonwealth and Development Office. Um, but that's an important element of, of UK defence, of, of operating with friends and partners globally in order to both provide reassurance, to work together, to build capability, um, also to generate understanding um, of those situations. So, so I think, yes, we see a, um, I see a, a, a set of complex challenges um, which um, face us, but also it's important to think about how we're operating and trying to do that on a global basis.
John, you spoke to the general about a range of issues. Did he say anything about the calls we were discussing last week for the carrier to be sent to the Red Sea in response to the Houthi attacks? Yes, he did. And, and this is still very much on the minds of many military analysts, as you were hearing uh, last week. And I was certainly discussing that um, with quite a few people behind the scenes at Lancaster House uh, at the beginning of the week. And so far, we haven't heard any of the senior military chiefs respond to these calls until now. And General Hockenhall's take on these suggestions was pretty robust. What we need to do is we need a, uh, to make sure that we can put the right sort of capabilities in order to defend against um, the necessary threats. Um, the threats that were being posed um, to, uh, to shipping in the Red Sea, I think is entirely appropriate um, with the vessels that we sent. And we've seen the impact that HMS Diamond has had um, in recent weeks um, in terms of being able to, to counter that threat, both the threat posed um, to commercial shipping and indeed the threat posed to HMS Diamond, which led to us acting in, in self-defense overnight. Those, uh, to me, seem to be the right sort of capabilities. Um, and I think there are, there are judgments that are made over um, what capabilities you want to put into a place to counter threats. And I think you know, relying on the professional judgment of military personnel is perhaps the, the right thing to do, rather than necessarily listening to a set of commentators that, that suggest we might throw a range of capabilities into that space. And these are, these are carefully calibrated judgments um, and... And at this particular moment in time, I think the forces which we've deployed um, not only are appropriate, but they've also shown themselves to be um, appropriate and capable. That was the commander of Strategic Command, General Sir Jim Hockenhull, talking there. Thanks, Sean. And you can see more of that interview with Sean across Forces News next week. Uh, Mike, what are your thoughts on General Hockenhull's comments? He seems to feel there is hope for success in the Red Sea. Yes, the, I mean, there is certainly hope for success um, in the sense that this was never going to be a quick one-off process. The Houthis were always going to continue to attack shipping, and they've continued to do that since the um, strike of last week. Um, on the other hand, they've only managed individual shots, as it were. They're taking pot shots individually. I suspect they will try to mount something a bit more impressive with, you know, a dozen or so missiles and drones and see if they can get lucky, which if they continue to do it, they might. So the, the, this operation was always an operation in dissuasion to make it expensive for them to keep on doing this and to persuade them just not to do it. Um, you know, this is not this operation is not designed to defeat the Houthis as a as a force. I mean, they've, they're fighting a civil war in Yemen. They'll continue to do that. But it's to dissuade them by increasing the cost to them to stop doing this because every time they attack and every time the Americans respond, they've so far as of today, they've responded four times, the United States, then the Houthis are losing more storage, more radars, you know, more of their infrastructure is being dismantled. That won't stop them fighting, but mm. it increases the cost to them. And that's the idea, to just make it too expensive. And the Houthis will never declare that they've stopped. They'll just stop doing it. And it'll take some time before shipping feels more confident if that happens before they go into the Red Sea. So whatever the Houthis do from now on, they have affected the Red Sea as a transit route for some months to come. And they've, they've hurt, they are hurting the world economy, even if they decided today to stop doing it. Mike, stay with us. So, according to the US, in the Red Sea, the Houthis have attacked ships linked to more than 50 countries between mid-November and early January. And before that, they'd already been targeting Israel directly. 
So what's in their arsenal and what might be left after the attacks on their facilities by the US and the UK? Well, Dr. Andreas Krieg is a senior lecturer in security studies at King's College London. Uh, good to talk to you today, Andreas. Um, can you just walk us through the way in which shipping has been attacked in the Red Sea? What are the Houthis using in terms of drones, boats and missiles? Yeah, I mean, the, the Houthis have a huge arsenal, a very diverse arsenal of different remote devices that they can, that they can lever, uh, lever against ships. And they've done that in the past. It's not the first time they're doing it. Not just, it's not the first time in this context of the Gaza war that they're doing it. They have a, a range of uh, anti-ship mis missiles, some of them ballistic, uh, some of them non-ballistic. They have a range of drones, um, and they have different missiles, different ranges, different payload. Um, most of them actually fired fairly remotely and on based on from mobile platforms, which make them very difficult to detect, very difficult to to basically destroy as well. And um, we've seen that already in this long war that the Saudis have fought against the Houthis, that their ballistic ballistic missile capability is is basically all over the country um, and makes it very very difficult to eliminate from the air. Quite a range of missiles, you say. Can you tell us a bit more about? the ballistic and cruise missiles they're using? Well, some of the missiles that they're having are, uh, you know, are dumb missiles. Uh, they're basically radar guided, which makes them not very precise. Um, and, you know, they, they, they're quite disruptive. They not always hit their target, but they also have now more sophisticated weaponry that they've received from Iran, um, which uh, which is actually, you know, some of them are optically guided, some of them even laser guided, which may, may, makes them very precise and very difficult to avoid. Um, and uh, the, the other issue that we're having is that while they have a large arsenal that they've taken over from the Yemeni armed forces when they took over the country or the northern part of the country in 2014, um, these these arsenal, this large arsenal of, of, of all kinds of ballistic missiles and, uh, and smaller anti-ship missiles as well has been upgraded uh, by some technology that was received by Iran. Um, and so they're becoming, they've, they've been transformed from being rather a, a dumb weapon to being a more precise weapon now. Um, and so it's very difficult to really say how large the arsenal is. But obviously, for the last decade, we know that the Iranians have constantly shipped missiles to the Houthis uh, via a land route, via a, a, a maritime route. Makes it, and it has been very, very difficult to intercept that because what they do, what the Iranians have come up with, which which they've done in, in Lebanon as well, is a way of deconstructing uh, and, and disassembling the missiles and then reassembling them uh, when the parts arrive on land in Yemen. Um, and so we 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 probably find that even if we destroy some of their capabilities from the air, they'll be able to resupply, reassemble some of the weaponry as we speak. So they probably have been resupplied by the Iranians over the last three and a half uh, months already. And do you have any idea of what they had before the US and the UK attacked facilities in Yemen and what might be left? Very difficult to say what is left. I think the strikes so far have been very limited. Um, so apart from uh, trying to hit the arsenals, which you know were f fairly well known, uh, we've we've attacked. Uh, you know, the UK and US have, have attacked the radar station as well, uh, trying to trying to uh, destroy their their eyes, um, the the eyes that the Houthis have um, on the coastline in terms of knowing what what comes through. Um, what comes through uh, the Bab al-Mandab Strait. The problem with that is it's not just the radars because they're also using uh, open source uh, intelligence that is available of where certain uh, ships are. Even that could be used if, they, if, if they're fairly close 
to um, to the coast to to attack them basically. Um, and the, the the smaller missiles, missiles as I say, um, you know, we have to, to understand they're not large ballistic missiles that can be seen from the air. Um, they they mounted upon vehicles and fired upon mobile. Uh, launching uh, sites and uh, launching pads, and um, they, they they drive out of sight as soon as they fire their rockets, which makes it very difficult to to destroy them unless you destroy them immediately. And what we've seen so far is that US and UK have responded to these missiles attacked uh, in in you know with a some time delay, which means by the time we strike, most of them probably would have uh, disappeared. So what we struck so far are the kind of uh, concrete uh, uh, arsenals and some of the radar sites as well. Um, I'm not sure that this will make any uh, will have any major impact on the capability because the capability is spread across the country um, and m much of it also in areas which are you know it's very inaccessible terrain uh, in in bunkers and, and and caves that have been prepared for for the last decade and even longer. And the Saudis, with much more capability, with with a l much larger coalition. Uh, have not been able to destroy that. So it's it's very hard to imagine that we can do this in a very short time frame. You mentioned um, earlier how uh, the Houthis have managed to acquire uh, their weaponry uh, during the civil war. They confiscated it from, seizing it from the, the, the military, the Yemeni military. Can you just talk us through um, how they've built up and improved this range of weapons over those nine years of civil war? No, well, as I said, um, the, the smaller the, 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 the missiles that they had in their arsenal um, that they acquired from the Yemeni armed forces were were weren't very sophisticated. We've seen obviously new, entirely new uh, missiles arriving from Iran since 2014. Some of them being the exact same type that the Iranians used themselves, and we know Iranian missile technology being very very sophisticated. Uh, what is more problematic is that um, what they have, which seemingly the Iranians have managed to do is teaching the Houthis of how to build and assemble their own weaponry. So they have created new Yemeni versions of Iranian platform, uh, Iranian uh, ordnance and, and, and missiles. Um, and they, they, they have, the, they seem to have the same engine, um, and they seem to have a propulsion system. Um, but, um, you have new, new ones that are made for the Houthi purpose, particularly in the anti, anti missile, uh, anti ship, uh, missile arsenal. We see some new developments which are, which are Houthi made with Iranian support. Uh, and that in itself makes it very, very difficult to really, uh, destroy that capability or destroy actually the supply chain and the supply route because the argument has always been if we intercept Iranian missiles coming in at some point the houthis will be uh, you know will not have that uh, capability anymore S certainly these supply chains have to be attacked but as i say they can assemble and mm. change them on the ground as they see fit so in your view then your judgment uh, the houthis will be relative relatively resilient in being able to rebuild their stockpiles Absolutely. I mean, the, the Houthis, there's nothing we can do with, in this campaign, US, UK, to actually erode the capability that the Houthis have significantly to make them stop doing what they're doing. Um, they, their willpower and their capability will not be undermined by this campaign, particularly also because we have already said this is a limited campaign. This is not a campaign against the Houthis uh, writ large. This is not a campaign against the Yemenis. Um, so it's, it's very targeted. It's very limited. We don't want to cause more destruction than necessary. We clearly don't want to kill anyone uh, if we can avoid it. So it's more about sending a message to the Houthis to stop doing it. And I think that's not going to happen because we know over time they're not very responsive to deterrence or coercion. Uh, they haven't been for, for over a decade. And now if we want to destroy their capability, this is also something that we can't do remotely from the air.
Dr. Andreas Krieg, great to talk to you. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you. Mike, if deemed necessary, how much longer can the Royal Navy continue on this operation without replenishing their weapon stocks? Well, they can continue the operation, but replenishing weapon stocks is a constant issue and it's not uncomplicated. So they do have some challenges to face if this is going to go on for some weeks and months. Diamond has done a very good job, but um, it will have used up some of its ammunition, which is the Aster missile. And um, there are challenges for Diamond to restock because, in theory, it would have to go back to Gibraltar to restock or have Astas brought out to it uh, into a, a, a base that's nearer, maybe in Bahrain, where we have a, a naval base. Um, but it's not straightforward. And my question to the Royal Navy and to Jim Hockenhull would be, yeah, you know, undoubtedly Diamond is, is doing the right job. It's the right thing exactly there, partly because of its sophisticated radars. But as and when Diamond has to leave its station to go and restock on missiles, what is going to replace it? Do we have another daring class Type 45 with its sophisticated radars to replace it? I don't think we do. I hope we do, but I'm not sure. I'm not aware that anything's on the way. We, we can replace it with the Type 23 frigates. So the Lancaster is there. The Richmond is on the way. That's fine. They've got Aster missiles but they don't have the sophisticated radar. So to a degree, when Diamond has to go off station, we will replace it with a ship that is less capable than doing what Diamond has done. Now, I hope I'm wrong about that. I'd love there to be another daring class destroyer on its way to sit where Diamond is sitting in the Red Sea, but I don't see it. Well, let's return now to something mentioned earlier by the commander of Strategic Command, the importance of the defence attaché in promoting military diplomacy. If what the Defence Secretary says is true, that we are entering into a pre-war era, what does that mean for diplomacy? Former Army officer Anton Gash is one of the UK Armed Forces' most experienced defence attachés, having represented the UK in 25 countries across three continents. So, what are the priorities of a defence attaché? I think most importantly is to, is to understand that a good defence attaché will have a close relationship with the host nation military in his or her designated countries. And of course, uh, they'll cooperate and share information with other defence attaché colleagues. Now, that's most obvious with the big hitters like the USA or France, uh, depending on what country you're in. But it's also important to maintain those more subtle relationships, perhaps with defence attaches from smaller regional countries who may actually have the specific expertise or the contacts that you need and that can be used. But it's also key for an attaché to step outside that military box and to develop and maintain a broader network without treading on the toes of embassy colleagues, um, but a network with the media, with academia, with the business community, civil society, international organisations, NGOs, charities, uh, a whole host. That's what keeps your antenna active as a defence attaché and prevents you getting tunnel vision when you're addressing um, emerging issues. Sometimes a defence attaché might be, in effect, the last man standing. Um, for example, after the evacuation of the British Embassy from Mali in 2012, after a violent coup d'etat, I ended up as the sole eyes and ears, um, providing information and reporting to a wide variety of government departments and the Cabinet Office and other agencies until it was safe for our diplomats um, to return. 
Um, my final general point is actually to say that it was really good to hear General Hockenhull talk about the defence attaché network being under his responsibility as Chief of Defence Intelligence. There was a lot of debate while I was serving as a defence attaché about who should control it. If you're inside defence intelligence, um, it slightly opens the door to accusations that defence attachés are, are intelligence agents or spies, which they're absolutely not. But having the Chief of Defence Intelligence as your boss certainly improves the chances of your information getting to the right place um, in a timely fashion, which is not always possible with other reporting channels. Clearly, you see the importance of diplomacy. And given what the Defence Secretary said about us being in a pre-war era, is it failing, particularly when you look at what has happened in Ukraine and what is happening? Well, there's always been a spectrum of potential response to any crisis, I think, for as long as mankind has been dealing with, uh, with, with conflicts and disputes. And that spectrum has got negotiation and diplomacy on one side and military action on the other, with a sort of pendulum in between. And in general, Western democracies have always swung the pendulum to the less kinetic side, to the negotiation side. And I think we saw in the early stages of the Russian invasion of Ukraine that there was a marked reluctance to commit to things like the provision of decisive weapon systems. Um, we were all concerned about conflict proliferation and how Russia might react. But over the last couple of years, that pendulum has certainly shifted across. And today we've got HIMARS, tanks, artillery systems, munitions, potentially F-16s, all considered fair game for what we, we could or should supply to Ukraine. What I, what I think I'd say about which you should use is that whereas military action can be, although of course it's always nuanced, but it's, it is relatively black and white, whereas diplomacy only works if both sides are playing the same game. And if we look back to um, just before the Russian invasion of Ukraine in February 22, we, uh, we saw Liz Truss as the foreign secretary at the time meeting her counterpart, Sergei Lavrov. And he described his meeting with her, and I haven't got the exact quote, but it was along the lines of, it was like the mute speaking to the deaf. And he made several discrediting comments about her grasp of the situation and how professional she was. And throughout that period, his aggression and sarcasm uh, became a very familiar tactic, seeking to frame negotiations as hopeless before they'd even begun. And I think we have to wonder, is, is does this actually represent a new, more muscular form of diplomacy that in, in, uh, in Russia's case has probably been reinforced by them seeing how relatively powerless uh, the rest of the world has been to do things like find a way around Russia's veto um, in the UN Security Council. But President Biden, you know, operating in the US, he very bluntly ruled out the possibility of direct US intervention in Ukraine very early on. And there was a, a question from an NBC reporter asking him what scenarios would prompt or provoke a U.S. military operation to rescue U.S. nationals who might be stranded in Ukraine. And his reply was, there's not one, as in there's, there's no scenario. Uh, and he said that that would be a world war. So I, I think also we could argue on the macro scale, uh, the strategic end of diplomacy, that Ukraine was trying to join both NATO and the European Union. And that accession process was 
proceeding very slowly for a variety of very valid reasons about conditions that had to be met. But it could be that the slowness of those accession processes actually encouraged Putin to act, you know, in, in, in the similar ways that we were told that our vague and, and indecisive messaging before the Falklands conflict or gave, a, gave a green light to, um, to Galtieri or that our slight uh, hesitation about uh, responses to Kuwait may have given uh, Saddam Hussein a, a green light in 1990. My main conclusion is that what we have to wonder is whether a negotiated route through all of these crises has simply become too complex for our politicians and our governments to negotiate particularly given the sort of short-term nature at the moment of, of Western politics. We have, you know, such frequent elections, such frequent changes of leadership that the autocrats and dictators who are causing the problems for us, they kind of know that all they have to do is wait out the for the next change of leadership, which then puts them onto, onto a sort of strategic advantage because they are that read in and they're, they're in the game, whereas they, they're then dealing with newcomers who, who perhaps lack the experience. The risk with all of that is that diplomacy stops being the tool of first resort, which it frankly always should be, and becomes more of a support act, very much in, in the manner of the um, Lavrov, Sergei, Sergei Lavrov's uh, muscular diplomacy. What would you consider to be the diplomatic successes that you've had in your career? I, I'll give a couple of examples. Um, one was in 2017 when I was sitting in Jamaica uh, as defence attaché to the Caribbean as Hurricanes Irma and Maria were, were devastating the East Caribbean. And my phone rang and it was the permanent joint headquarters uh, asking if I could help them with a, a critical problem for air transport to get a reconnaissance team forward from when they landed in Barbados to the British Virgin Islands to where there were no civil aviation available at all and no military assets in the theatre. So I called the Chief of Defence Staff in Barbados, with whom I'd established a, a very cordial relationship, um, and he immediately said, yes, of course I'll fly the teams forward, but I can't do it today, Anton, you'll, you'll have to wait till tomorrow, which was a, a huge win. So as I was dialing permanent joint headquarters to report this news, my phone rang and it was Chief of Defence Staff Barbados again. And he said, uh, Anton, I've just thought, uh, would a barracks and logistics base be any use to you? Uh, now, PGHQ hadn't said anything to me about that, but uh, on, on the principle of not looking a gift horse in the mouth, I, I've, of course, said, yes, please, uh, I'll, I'll, I'll take it. Rang PGHQ, and to cut the story short, we ended up putting the whole of the Joint Force headquarters, uh, its logistics and the key enablers of the Joint Task Force, into a barracks near Bridgetown Airport, and where we were fantastically supported by the Barbados Defence Force. And finally, as a very personal one, but this is, this is a, expanding on my point about influence and access and having those phone numbers at your disposal. In 2011, um, I was in Ivory Coast, Côte d'Ivoire, and I was trapped in the basement of the ambassador's residence, along with the ambassador and 15 of our local staff. And there'd been violent fighting all around us for a while, uh, which had culminated in a, a French effort to extract us, to rescue us from the, from the basement in a nighttime uh, special forces operation. Now, that operation failed because the, the French lost four of their helicopters to, to enemy fire. Two, two of them were, were, were shot down and two of them had to return to base badly damaged. Um, so nobody was quite sure what we would then do. 
and I was able to work my phone book talking to the opposing commanders on, on both sides who'd been shooting at each other and to the United Nations and to the French and eventually we were able to negotiate a, a, a ceasefire a corridor which we and other diplomats from surrounding um, ambassadorial residences were able to be evacuated safely along to the French military base. So as ever, the value of influence, access, having a network and knowing how to exploit it. Anton Gash there. Uh, Mike, um, in your career, what do you think makes a good diplomatic operator? What kind of person? Oh, yeah. Well, for the defense attaches, I mean, as Anton was saying, he's very experienced, been around in so many places. And in a way, a defense attache is a sort of a, a military version of the foreign office diplomat. So it's somebody who specializes in relations with the local military and reporting things back and so on. And um, Alan Mallinson um, was a, a very good defense attache in Italy, for instance. I think it was his last job in the army. And of course, he went on to become a very successful military historian. He's a very good one and, and a, uh, a writer. I mean, he's got you know a series of racy novels about the about post Napoleonic War um, characters. Um, Buster Howes, who we were talking to last week, he was a very well regarded defence attaché in Washington. And of course, all defence attachés really are involved in intelligence, even in friendly countries. I mean, what you're reporting back on is well, what's the tr thinking in the army yeah. or the the military? You know, when it, what what's their defence review likely to say? Um, you know, what are the trends in spending on defence? And that's a matter of interest. Whether it's Italy or America or Russia. I mean, a friend of mine used to be the naval attaché in Moscow, and his job, this is in 1962, before um, satellite photography was available, his job was to work out how much steel was going into Russian shipyards to give them some idea about how many ships were likely to come out at the other end. And mm -hmm. I used to have a, a, a regular conversation with a, a defence attaché in uh, a Russian defence attaché in London, and he used to come and have a lunch with me at his request a couple of times a year. And I mean, I knew he was a spy. He knew I knew he was a spy, and <laughs> so we used to, we used to have these rather carefully worded conversations a couple of times a year, and, <laughs> and, and quite a nice lunch. Interesting, they do exist. Mike, thank you so much. And um, my thanks to all of our guests. That's all for now. Professor Michael Clark and I will be back with another SIT rep next Thursday. Until then, you can stay up to date with everything that's happening on our news website, forces.net. For now, though, from me, Kate Chabot, thank you for listening. Bye bye.